Deuteronomy chapter 24, we work our way through the scriptures. Uh, seems like we've been in the Old Testament quite a while now, but that's okay. It's been, it's been good for me to teach from the Old Testament. Makes me study a little more. <laughs> but Deuteronomy covers about a month and a half of Moses' life. And in this book, Moses is basically reminding the children of Israel what God has to say to them. In chapter 22, which we looked at last week, Moses laid out how Israel was to watch out and care for their neighbors. And in that society, it meant caring for your neighbor's animals. God was even... Uh, wanting the animals to be taken care of. And if your neighbor had an animal that needed assisting or needed help getting it maybe back into its pen or corral, you were to do that. You were to help your neighbor. Basically, God is requiring Israel to be a good neighbor, watching out for their fellow men. We have uh, today a group of folks called the Mormons and they win many converts to their church by simply helping people that are in distress. Although Mormonism is what definitely what I call a cultish religion, they make inroads for their church by applying the principle of helping your neighbor. As a body of believers here, we want to be about helping our neighbors, helping those within our body, and I think we do that. I think we put that into practice. But to help and serve your neighbor or your fellow man or your fellow brother in Christ is perhaps the greatest witness that we can give as a Christian. And basically, helping your brother or your neighbor is called loving them. Right now, we're in the midst of planning uh, with Servant Quarters, which is a ministry founded by Gail Irwin. And we want to put a little book called The Jesus Style. And we want to put that book in every church in Alabama. Every Christian church, we want to send them a copy of this little book. And there will be more forthcoming on this in the near future. This little book is called The Jesus Style. Uh, it's perhaps one of the greatest books that I've ever read on the nature of Jesus, presenting him as a servant. But for our study today, let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 24, and we'll look at verses 10 through 15. Verse 10, when you lend your brother anything, you shall not go into his house to get his pledge. You shall stand outside, and the man to whom you lend shall bring the pledge out to you. And if the man is poor, you shall not keep his pledge overnight. You shall in any case return the pledge to him again when the sun goes down, that he may sleep in his own garment and bless you. And it shall be righteousness to you before the Lord your God. 
You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether one of your brethren or one of the aliens who is in your land within your gates. Each day you shall give him wages and not let the sun go down on it, for he is poor and he has set his heart on it, lest he cry out against you to the Lord and it be a sin to you. We see in this passage that the poor and those who borrow have what we would call borrower rights. It was common practice for the poor uh, when borrowing to give something of value to the lender to hold as what we would call collateral. This would sometimes be their cloak or their maybe a warm blanket. And if this borrower was really poor, you were not to keep his pledge overnight. You were to give him back his cloak or his blanket where basically he could sleep warm. And God himself makes provision for the poor and needy because he cares that they are warm at night when they sleep. That's a gracious God. The lender was to return the pledge of the poor borrower so that the borrower would bless the lender in his prayers, not praying against the lender. I have people who do not want me to pray for them. That says something, doesn't it? <laughs> this perhaps people that are up for assignment in the Air Force. They've requested that I not pray about where they're relocated. We just soon, Pastor Don, that you not pray about us relocating. I'm just saying. Back to our text. <laughs> hey, forgive me. <laughs> when you were hiring a day laborer, and this is uh, really a common practice in that part of the world, and especially at this time, and if this day laborer was one that was poor and needy, you were to pay that person his wages that day. Now, when Lori and I, before we got into ministry, <laughs> per se, we were tree farmers. Hard to have a lot of respect for a tree farmer, but we were tree farmers in the Central Valley in California. And occasionally we would need day laborers uh, to do certain tasks. For instance, when we wanted to pick peaches, we would go over to the labor camps and we'd bring back the number of workers that we needed. And most of these farm workers, honestly, they're very hard workers. And you were required by law to pay them at the end of the day, or you made provisions that when they had picked all of your peaches, whether that be one day or several days, you would make sure that you paid them. It was the law that you paid them. And you could not lawfully withhold their wages. And in most cases, honestly, it was minimum wage. But that was the way the government was watching out for those that were poor and needy. Way back in the 70s, I was living in Southern California, and there was an RV manufacturer. 
And he would hire, they were a big outfit, and they would hire illegal aliens and hold their wages for a week and a half, and then they would call immigration services and report their own illegals. The immigration authorities would raid the manufacturer and deport all the illegal workers before they receive their pay. That is cruel and inhumane. Yet, they were subject to this mistreatment by the manufacturer. And here in verse 15, God tells Moses, Israel is not to do this. They're not to be part of that kind of practice. The poor laborer, he has set his heart on receiving his wages. Give him his wages. And Moses continues, you do not want that poor laborer to cry out against you to the Lord. And thus you find yourself in sin. God cares for the poor. He cares for the underprivileged. And to defraud them of what's due them is a sin. Now we have areas here in our greater Huntsville area where men gather uh, to be hired on as day laborers. And it's a good labor source. If you need something done that's going to require, you know, more than you can do yourself, you go and you hire a guy. Just make sure you pay them their wages at the end of the day. And now we come to an Old Testament verse here that debunks, really, the teaching of generational curses. Maybe you've heard of that, maybe you haven't. There are those out there within within the church, within the Christian faith, that say you fall into sin or disfavor with God, not necessarily because of your own weakness, not because you're a bad person, but because of no fault of your own, you have inherited the sins of your father. Dad was a drunk. Therefore, you have a problem with alcohol. Dad was abusive to mom and to the kids, and therefore you struggle with a bad temper or you're perhaps a bully. All of this blame shifting is simply an evil attempt for a person to say, my sin is not my fault. My sin is a result of my environment my family heritage, and that's the reason I'm sinful. Or, you really can't blame me. It's not my fault. I was destined to sin. Well, maybe that is true, but we still can blame each <laughs> that sin upon you. And in verse 16, it really dispels this whole teaching. Verse 16 tells us how we are responsible for our own behavior. Let me, let me read verse 16. Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sin. Now that's getting a little drastic, but you were responsible for your own sin. Let me read another verse in Ezekiel 18 verse 20. 
The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Scripture is very clear here, and it's uh, telling us that each and every person is responsible for their own sin. Now, a child uh, has to reach that age of accountability, and we're not really certain where that is, but somewhere along the uh, growth of a child, they begin to realize they are responsible for their own behavior. And it's no longer the father and the mother that are responsible for the children or vice versa. But this whole generational curse teaching, it has a deception that maybe escapes our attention. This generational curse things removes or it tarnishes our need of a savior. Each and every one of us Fathers and sons, mothers and daughters need the atonement of Jesus upon the cross. We need it. The Bible teaches the need of the cross to remove all my personal sins, period. That's what removes my sin, the cross of Jesus and my faith in the substitutional work of Jesus on the cross. And notice, each person unless forgiven by Christ, will pay the penalty for their own sin. And no forgiveness of sin, it equals the death penalty, eternal separation from God. Your sins will separate you you from God if they're not covered by Christ, by faith in your own life. Let's look at verses 17 through 22. You shall not pervert justice due to the stranger or the fatherless, nor take a widow's garment as a pledge, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore I command you to do this thing. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. And when you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not glean it afterwards. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. Any governmental system is to be fair and equal to strangers or the fatherless. And that's not always the case. In many cultures, there is one law for the native born or the citizens. And there's another law for strangers are the fatherless. God does not want that practice within his own people. Moses reminds Israel, he says, remember your roots. Remember you were slaves in the land of Egypt. 
remember how it was before God delivered you. The everyday citizen of Israel, talking about today, they have a soft spot in their heart for the Palestinians. You wouldn't think so. But having gone to Israel a couple of times, it's amazing to see the compassion that the Israelis have for the Palestinians because they are a displaced people and they remember what Moses has told them. Israel does remember that they were once in Egypt. They remember that they were once slaves. Now we have Moses, and Moses is basically setting forth the welfare system for Israel. When you harvest your grain fields, it's okay to leave a little behind for the gleaners. The gleaners are the ones that would come in behind uh, the harvest, and they would gather up grain, a little leftover. And the book of Ruth tells about uh, Boaz and Ruth and how Boaz would purposely leave grain for Ruth together. But God promises to bless the work of your hand if you're giving and compassionate to the poor. That's something for us to remember today. The poor in that day would follow the harvesters. They would go out and glean the leftovers out in the field or in the orchards. And then he talks about an olive tree. And if you had olive trees, you were only allowed to beat on the boughs or beat on the limbs, and the olives that fell off, you were to gather and uh, for your harvest to squeeze the oil out of them and that thing. But you weren't to go back to the trees again. One time, the olives that were left on there were to be gleaned by the poor and the fatherless. Uh, the same condition applied if you had a grape vineyard. You were to go in there, go in there one time, pick your grapes, and then leave the ones that perhaps were not ripe for the gleaners. Now, back to my illustrious history. <laughs> when we lived in Central uh, California, we had along with our almonds and walnuts, a small peach orchard, about five acres. Peaches require a lot of work, but you can make good money on peaches. And Peaches, when they would first bloom out and start making a peach, and you had peaches about the size of your thumb, you had to thin them. Because if you didn't thin the peaches, none of the peaches would make size for harvest. Then a couple of months later, you would come in and pick them. Now I'm going to tell you the Spanish that I learned. No chiquito, no verde. That's about the extent of my Spanish, which simply means no small ones, no green ones. And you would just walk out among the pickers, and this was your song to them, no chiquito, no verde. And they got the message, and they, they worked hard, and they earned their money. Because the peach buyers would ding you for green peaches or small ones. So you got less money for your for your pickings. 
But the pickers would invariably leave, because of the small ones and the green ones, they would leave at least 10% of the peaches on the trees. These peaches were not worth going back after. It was not worth hiring a crew to repick your orchard. So we understand that you left them. And I would offer, I would go to church and I'd say, hey, if you want peaches, there's a lot out there. Come pick it. And some people would come and pick the peaches. But peaches, they produce a lot of tonnage per acre. I said tonnage. You would get 30 to 40 tons of peaches per acre. That's a lot of peaches. And they only paid you $200 a ton. And that's about 10 cents a pound. That's the way it was in the 90s. So you left some for the gleaners. This was the welfare system. And it, you know, and the people would come out and they would be able to uh, provide for themselves by gleaning. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we read how Jesus and the disciples ate from the grain fields. So turn with me to Mark, Mark chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 23 through 28. We have Jesus and his disciples, and they're out on a Sabbath, and they're walking through the grain fields. Mark 2, verse 23. Now it happened that when he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain, and the Pharisees said to him, Look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? But he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry, he and those with him? How he went into the house of God in the days of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priest. And he also gave some to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore the Son of Man is also the Lord of the Sabbath. In Deuteronomy, we saw how the grain fields... Uh, were for the uh, poor and the hungry, and it allowed them to exist. But here we are, and we're on a Sabbath journey with Jesus, and he's walking with the disciples, uh, and they become hungry. And they're plucking heads of grain, perhaps wheat, and they're rubbing them together in their hands and blowing the husk away. And they're having not a meal, but they're having a little snack along the way. And the Pharisees accuse Jesus now and his disciples of breaking the Sabbath laws. First, they're walking. And second, they're harvesting. The religious leaders of that day had set limits on how far you could walk on the Sabbath. Two miles. You had to keep it under two miles. Well, that's not very far. And you could not rub the heads of the grain in your hands to get to the kernels. That was considered harvesting. 
and harvesting was forbidden on the Sabbath. A definite no-no. But Jesus uses this challenge of the Pharisees to teach on Sabbath laws. And Jesus basically tells the Pharisees, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Or you Pharisees and scribes have reversed what the Sabbath is all about. You just did a complete flip-flop on it. The Sabbath was to be a day of ease and relaxation, not a day of restrictions. And if you're listening to me, Mr. Pharisees, and this is Jesus, he said, hear this. I, the Son of Man, am Lord of the Sabbath. And Jesus is wanting to get through to them. But take note. The Pharisees condemned the disciples for eating roadside grain. But the Pharisees did not offer to give the disciples anything to eat, did they? Perhaps they had food, too. The disciples were hungry. And the Pharisees condemned them for their hunger. But there's no offer to help. There's no offer of, here, come to my house and have a meal. The disciples are gleaning from the grain fields. And this quite possibly tells us Jesus and his disciples did not have money to even buy food. Perhaps. Now, I'm not saying necessarily. We're, we're kind of left in the dark about this. But it's quite possible they didn't have money to even buy food. And Jesus and his disciples, they're eating from these grain fields. And they're eating as the poor and the fatherless. Back to Deuteronomy 24. The last verse in chapter 24, Moses reminds Israel for the second time in this little passage, you are to remember your roots. You are to remember that you were slaves in the land of Egypt. And the memory of your slavery is to have an effect on you. It's to temper your attitude towards the hungry and the needy. If you've ever been truly hungry and could not get food, you will have compassion on that person that you see along the roadside that says, we'll work for food. You can't bypass him if you've been hungry yourself. You must do something to help them. As Christians, we're to be a help. It's part of the territory. We're to be a solution to those that are in need or to those that are hungry. We do not ever want someone crying out in prayer against us because we will not help them out. Because God hears their prayers. So be generous, be giving, 
and God promises to bless the work of our hands if we will simply have compassion. Amen? Amen. Let me get you to stand. We'll close in prayer. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And now I want to pray for us. Father God, thank you so much just for letting us be born in a nation that is so prosperous. Lord, I can honestly say I've never been hungry in my life without the means to be able to find something to eat or buy something to eat. Many parts of the world cannot say that. So we're blessed, Lord. We're blessed with great riches that we don't even realize sometimes. Thank you, Lord, that you love us and you provide for us. We thank you for that. Lord, we want to be showing your compassion and your love to those that are needy. So, Lord, don't let us be quick to bypass that one that may be asking for a handout or that one that may be holding a sign that says, we'll work for food. Let us be compassionate. We want to be like you, Jesus. We want to we be loving our neighbors, not condemning them. The Pharisees were quick to condemn the disciples, but they did nothing to help them. We don't want to be that way, Lord. So give us a heart of compassion. Give us your heart, Lord. And we thank you that we can pray for these traits, these behaviors to be seen in our life. We want to be like our Lord, and we pray and ask for this in your name, Jesus. Amen.